how's it going, anesthesia nerds? This is Tasha McNerney, and I hope you all are enjoying your time in quarantine uh, and making the best of it. Today, I am joined on the podcast by someone that you may have seen us mention on our Instagram page. And certainly, if there's ever an anesthesia question that involves something like a lemur or a gorilla, I bounce it over to Mark. So our guest today is Mark Romanowski. He is a registered veterinary technician who currently works at the Oklahoma City Zoo and Botanical Gardens, and he is a member of their animal health team. So we're going to talk to him today about some zoo medicine, anesthesia stuff, and just how he got started with his career. So all you nerds, please welcome Mark to the podcast. Hey, Mark. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. So, Mark, uh, I know that right now your uh, time at the zoo is a little bit changed because of what's going on, Um, but as far as the zoo and zoo medicine, um, how did you get started in zoo medicine? Because I know a lot of technicians, once they come out of, you know, their tech school programs, they go right into working in a clinic. Um, So what was your trajectory? How did you get started in zoo medicine specifically? It's really interesting with zoo medicine. Um, I don't think you can say there's one clear path. I think everyone that works in zoos, they came into it completely different from the next person. For me, I um, started working at a private practice, general practice hospital while I was in school and um, worked there for a couple of years and eventually went into a specialty setting where I was doing anesthesia and surgery. And the doctor that I worked for would go out to the Phoenix Zoo, where I'm from, and do ultrasounds for them um, on more complicated cases. And he would take us with him as kind of like a special thing. And I went one day and I asked the tech who was working there, uh, you know, how can I stay here forever? Like, I don't want to go back to work. I want to work with these animals. And she said, well, come volunteer with us. So on my days off, I would go out there and uh, volunteer and and run a lot of their anesthesia cases with them. Um, That was a special interest of mine. And eventually, after a few years, they had an opening and I applied and I've kind of been going ever since. And then I moved out to the Oklahoma City Zoo. I had never lived anywhere else. Phoenix had always been my home and I thought it was a perfect opportunity to try something new. And I packed up my car and drove out here and I've been here for the last two years uh, working at the John Kirkpatrick Animal Hospital at the Oklahoma City Zoo. That's awesome. So, you know, take us through like what's a typical day in the life? I know you have a special interest in like anesthesia pain management of zoo animals, but what's a typical day for you at the zoo, at the at the clinic within the zoo? Um, it, it really depends on what my role is that week. We do all of our own in-house lab work. So one week I may be lab tech where I'm running all of the fecal samples for the zoo. We do have a preventative fecal program or uh, running elephant blood to check for elephant herpes virus. And then the next week I may be clinical where I'm primary on the procedures. If it's a routine exam or an emergency exam, I'm responsible for facilitating the setup, induction with the resident or with the vet. I'm kind of the go-to tech for those. And then we have people jump in when we need more hands on deck, but um, it really changes every day. One day I may be anesthetizing a frog for a mass removal and the next uh, two hours later, you know, a lion needs to have something looked at or, you know, it really changes and keeps us on our toes uh, every single day. I would think that it would be so vastly different than a regular clinic setting. Um, definitely, I 
had this, I had caught the same bug that you did. And after I was in graduated tech school, I worked for the New Jersey State Aquarium, which was in Camden. Um, and one of the cool things I remember was our stingray was pregnant. And so we would get to go do these ultrasounds on her. And then when she had babies and working with like the caimans and all the aquarium and the penguins. So it really was very interesting. Unfortunately, it was not very financially rewarding. So <laughs> I eventually left uh, because of that. And, you know, just Camden in general was like a really strange place to have a, an aquarium and a zoo. Uh, <laughs> uh, and driving in there every day was, it was just very interesting, let's say that. So the hour-long drive into Camden was not super fun. And, you know, making no money was not super fun either. So hopefully you're making some money. Uh, but it is super interesting to get to see all these different species and, I mean, what you need to know and aesthetically so different for all of them, right? I mean, like diving yeah. birds or diving mammals are so different than the regular like dog and cat anatomy that we're used to. So it is really fascinating. Um, but I know that you also pick up shifts at a specialty emergency. So you do get to still do some dog and cat anesthesia. Uh, what kind of dog and cat anesthesia are you usually doing when you pick up those shifts? Oh, it's, it runs the spectrum. Um, we have a boarded anesthesiologist on staff. She really empowers the technicians. We write our own protocols and then we'll go have her review them and say, yep, good to go. Um, so it's not us making those final decisions. It's always with a doctor. But I mean, it could range from a diaphragmatic hernia to TPLOs, any, anything on emergency. I was on, on call last night for surgeries and luckily I didn't get, get called in. <laughs> Um, so that's good for pets everywhere, but it, it really, a lot of this stuff in zoo medicine, um, because those, not all those animals are super tractable, we can't jump in and place a catheter, you know, without immobilizing first. It really helps me keep those kinds of skills, a little more hands-on uh, monitoring, things like that in check, placing epidurals routinely, uh, rum blocks. We do a lot of local anesthesia and regional anesthesia at, at that clinic. And so what I found is that I can take a lot of that information and bring it back to the zoo. And so if we have a particular case, I can, you know, make a suggestion, say, hey, you know, maybe we can try this uh, local block or we can try this anesthetic combination and, and kind of work with the doctors. And we do great medicine at the zoo, very progressive, top, top notch. But um, sometimes I think because you don't see those types of cases every day in the zoo, you don't always get the opportunity to utilize those, those skills. And so it's been very beneficial to kind of get the best of both worlds. One thing that you just said that I really wanted to highlight for people listening is that you're really working as a team with your anesthesiologist. I mean, you know, and that should be the same with it at any clinic, you know, working with your clinician, because really, I think when you have a, a good team going, the doctor together, plus the technician, you know, both minds working together in the best interest of the patient, that's going to be the best thing. So, you know, shout out to your anesthesiologist for letting you guys write some protocols, critical thinking about the case, and then discussing it together. Because I, I really wish that more practices would do that. Uh, and I think that that's just like a personal soapbox of mine is really like having the whole team involved in anesthesia and not just a here, I wrote the protocol, you do what I say, and don't question anything. I think that we should always be talking about why we're making the decisions we're making, why a doctor might pick a certain drug over the other, I and mean, that's how we learn and grow and get better overall for the patient. So definitely kudos to your doctor for that. 
another kind of point to that is not every animal and every surgery gets the same thing. So one TPLO may get a, an epidural, the other one may not because they've already got Heimlin, you know, they've already got something going on that, that predisposes them to that not being the best option. And so it really keeps us from getting into that cookie cutter kind of every TPLO is hydromedaz at these doses. We're really uh, kind of assessing each patient individually and picking the best thing for them for that surgery for that time. So it's been, it's been awesome. It's been kind of uh, a little rough getting back into those uh, situations, being out of them for so long in zoo medicine, but they've been so supportive. No stupid questions. You just, it's better to ask than to not and have something go wrong. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think that again, any time where we can foster an environment of like collaboration and communication is better than, you know, just blindly following orders just because. So I, I, you got to shout out to your anesthesiologist and your doctors to, for making that happen. Sounds like you have a good team there. What I want to talk about, since you are doing so much anesthesia, dog anesthesia, cat anesthesia, gorilla anesthesia, uh, tell me about like what's one of your more favorite or what's a really memorable anesthetic experience you've had and maybe share with us some drug protocols you've used or seen or like any cool, fun stuff from your world that you want to share? Yeah, so... Uh, when I first started at Oklahoma City, we had a female gorilla that had an inguinal, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, umbilical hernia that was kind of static and progressively became to where it needed to be operated. And we worked with some human surgeons who recommended a laparoscopic repair of that. And with that, they recommended a neuromuscular blocking agent be used um, to help facilitate the expansion of their abdomen. They have a really big gut, like it's jam-packed full of stuff. So what we would normally do with a laparoscopic repair in a dog or cat, you know, we can expand them pretty big to get visualization. But with a gorilla, to get that expansion, you need some additional help. So we used metatomidine and ketamine to immobilize her. And then we, she was able to be intubated at that point, and we maintained her on ISO. And we used rocuronium, uh, which is really <laughs> common. Yeah, it was amazing. I had never used it before. And so I was furiously reading all of these human medicine papers. So I was extracting information from that and working with our head veterinarian to, you know, design the protocol and how we were going to deliver this and how much we were going to use. We weren't using it for the typical reasons they would in humans, which is to intubate and, and that sort of thing. And so we picked a dose and we had a human anesthesiologist come and help us with that as well. And he brought in his train of four monitor. So we had that on her, um, assessing her depth. And we even used an EEG, but they have a really um, prominent brow. And so the, the electrodes wouldn't kind of stick on there, right? Uh, but the train of four worked perfectly. And we had her on a ventilator, super important with those cases, especially when you're paralyzing um, the thoracic mm-hmm. muscles. And so we were able to do that procedure and we gave her little ketamine boluses when we thought she was responding to pain. But we were really watching for things on our uh, end title, a cure air cleft, to see if she was in an adequate depth as well as the train of four. And uh, it was just so eye-opening to me to anecdotally use this drug in this animal that it had been used before, but with zoo animals, you really need to get a lot of individual cases to really say this drug works in this way in this animal. And we're just not immobilizing gorillas with neuromuscular blocking agents enough to, to say this is the dose for a female gorilla. At this I point. guess that's true. Yeah. And so we, I ended up writing that case up 
for the Association of Zoo Vet Techs Conference last year and presented it. And it's, you know, it's a published, it's a, it's a proceedings, but it's a published work now. And people can reference that and, and say, okay, well, the Oklahoma City Zoo used this dose and this is the results they got. We can probably mirror that or, you know, do something similar. So it was such a, I feel like personally career advancing case to be a part of rather than just finding a dose and a mm-hmm. book. And, you know, it was a lot of critical thinking and monitoring. And we actually have used that drug in several other great apes in other procedures. We've had some cataract surgeries and things like that. So we were able to extrapolate even from our own procedure and use that in in chimps. And so uh, that was like the coolest thing to be able to be a part of that. (laughs) That is awesome. So what size endotracheal tube do you use for a... A gorilla. They're pretty much like people as far as that goes. Um, they're, okay. I would say, like uh, an average size female would probably be like a nine or a 10. Okay. I think humans may be a little bit smaller, like sevens or eights, but it really depends on their size. They're, they kind of range just like humans, but anywhere in that large dog <laughs> size for a male, that that's going to be much bigger. You may, you know, 12s or going up from there. Nothing, nothing extravagant like a lion where we would use like a, a 16 or an 18 or, you know, things like that. But they, uh, we typically put their catheters in their cephalic vein. Um, and then we can also uh, put an art line in their radial artery as well. Oh, um, yeah. Invasive blood pressure, which is super important. I think it's a gold standard. And so anytime we can do that, I advocate for it. In some species, it's harder to do in others it's it's kind of like is it is the the procedure's not long enough to really warrant the time warrant. putting yeah yes. minimize your anesthetic time as well but in those cases where it's a pretty big procedure and we're doing a lot um, of invasive stuff um, we always try for those those gold standards yeah same i recently did a emergency goat anesthesia and then, like, after the fact, I was kicking myself because normally we would put it in the artery, you know, in the ear for goat. But this one had these little cropped ears. So oh. I was like, well, oh, no, what am I going to do? And then I was driving home. And I'm like, Tasha, you idiot. Why don't you just try it for the dorsopedal artery like you would in a dog? Uh, oh. And I don't know why I didn't think of that. Uh, but at the time, I was like, oh, no, there's no ears. I'm done for. Um, and so, you know, how, like, if you... I don't do goat anesthesia that often. So my mind was just like cotton candy at that point. So we're a short podcast, so I'm going to try to wrap it up. But before we go, I do want to ask you for the techs listening who are thinking, wow, everything you've described just sounds really badass. And I want to do that. Uh, What's some advice that you have for new techs that may want to start in the zoo medicine or more exotic medicine field? I would definitely, there's a couple different, things. One, um, the Association of Zoo Vet Techs website, azbt.org, has a tab for jobs and postgraduate externships where you can go several zoos. Um, San Diego Zoo actually has one where you can go and do a, a month or six month long externship, depending on the zoo, and get that hands-on clinical skill. That makes you a, a much more valuable candidate um, if you already have some experience when you're applying. And then working at your um, you know, GP bird and exotics practices helps too, because what we're doing in cockatiels and those 
domestic pets, uh, exotic birds, exotic reptiles, those types of things have the, you know, they have very similar anatomy. And so just kind of getting your hands wet where you can and and being really passionate. I think people want to hire passionate people because like you said, the pay isn't always uh, the best when you're working for nonprofits and and things like that. Um, So being passionate and driven definitely helps. That sounds good. I mean, I definitely agree. I think the reason that I've been able to stay in this field for 15 years is because I really do truly enjoy it. Um, It's definitely not because of all the money that I'm making. Um, You know, I'm, I make a living. Um, uh, I decided to marry a veterinary technician, which again, because we really don't like money, I guess, but we're really (laughs) passionate about what we do. (laughs) Shout out to Rob. He's really sweet. I mean, obviously. I do have a, um, an Instagram that is, uh, I post a lot of stuff that we do um, on there and just yeah. general products, tips and tricks. And um, there's a lot of connections that can be made on there with people in zoo medicine. So that's um, at ZooMedRVT. And, uh, you know, you can follow along there. And Definitely. Get- and we'll put the link to Mark's Instagram in the show notes here for you guys. So if you want to follow him along on Instagram. But certainly, Mark, when you were getting started, there had to be a couple of people who really, you know, influenced you and mentored you. So since our podcast usually comes out on Monday, we like to do a feature that we call Mentor Monday. So is there anybody that you want to give a shout out to that has kind of helped you along and mentored you in your career? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Gary West at the Phoenix Zoo will always be one of my top mentors, especially with uh, anesthesia. He's a total badass when it comes to anything zoo related. Um, and then Steven Sattal, uh, is actually someone that, uh, <laughs> right. Like, you know him, have you heard of him? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I was a super excited brand new kind of to specialty tech. And he, I asked him some questions and he embraced every single one of them with open arms. And he's always been kind of my, one of my go-to, am I doing this right kind of people? And he's, he's just been super supportive of me over the years. So he's, he's another one. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Mark. And I hope that, I mean, I'm sure that we will have you on again uh, when we can talk more about some exotic species anesthesia. And I hope that you are enjoying your uh, kind of this days in quarantine and getting a lot of reading done, et cetera. Um, But thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening to that episode featuring Mark and all of his information on Zoo. Remember, you can check out the uh, Association of Zoo Veterinary Technicians online if you're interested in learning a little bit more and check out the group on Facebook as well. Also, if you guys are interested in learning more about the veterinary anesthesia nerds, you can visit us at our website at www.vetanesthesianerds.com and also check out other episodes of this podcast. If you guys are fans of this podcast and you enjoy what we're doing, you guys can become members and subscribers on Patreon and look for the link in our show notes and we'll see you next week. I guess that's it. Okay, great.